following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good to be with you today to open up God's Word. So have you ever been in a situation that was completely, totally, humanly impossible? Uh, There was no way out, and and you you just knew there was no way this was going to work out, and somehow... It did work out. Somehow, whatever was needed was provided for you. This is what happens sometimes in life. But this is the way of salvation in Christ. We think a lot of times we have to work for our salvation. We have to earn God's good graces. And and we try to run our lives. We we try to, um, to earn it. We realize that when God opens our eyes to the gospel, we realize that God did it all that he orchestrated it, that he planned it, that he carried it out. And this is what we're going to see in Romans 10 today. Uh, We're looking at verses 5 through 7, and what we're seeing is the impossible made available. The the impossible made available. How, How impossible it is to earn salvation and how God made the way available. He doesn't send us on a wild goose chase through the universe to figure it out on our own. So if you're able, I want you to stand with me as I read God's word. I'm in Romans 10. One of the great things about going verse by verse through the Bible and through books in the Bible is that one thing builds upon another. And it gives opportunity to really learn to live the truths of God's word, the truth of Scripture. I'm reading now in Romans 10, verses 5 through 7. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is authoritative. It is, it's binding on our consciences. It, it's infallible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It, you, your word is perfect because you are perfect, Lord. And I pray that as we contemplate these verses today, Lord, that you would, would do the work that only you could do in our hearts, that you would change us, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us, And do whatever you want in us and through us for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's no surprise that God has given people the ability to do some pretty amazing things. But sometimes there's this illusion that man does it on his own. And some people will even say that. Well, People did that on their own. God wasn't involved. That could be getting to the moon. That could be exploring space. That could be advances in science and medicine. I even watched a documentary recently where a guy free solo climbed El Capitan. And I remember watching when he was practicing, and I thought, wow, that's pretty dangerous with ropes and helpers. But if he was one millimeter off on a toehold, he would have fallen to his death. And it seems that a lot of people will just say, well, mankind did that on his own. They won't acknowledge God. 
And it does seem that, that there is no limit to what mankind can achieve. But at some point, if you're not acknowledging God, it, it reaches Babel-like proportions for those who refuse to acknowledge God. It, it, it seems like cosmic theft for those who will not give God any credit because every ability we have is a gift from God. I just heard recently of a man uh, near Seattle who was riding his motorcycle and he was going 70 miles an hour and he collided, a car collided with him and ejected him out of his motorcycle, off of it, 70 feet in the air. And it took off his right arm, it mangled one of his legs, and when he landed, miraculously he was still alive. There was a passerby that saw it happen immediately stopped and they happened to be a trauma nurse and they went and they put a tourniquet on the arm they held their uh his jaw open so they he could breathe the very next person who saw it it within seconds was an er doctor and he stops and he goes and gives help and then within eight minutes emergency personnel were on the scene and this guy was still alive they took him to the hospital they uh took him through a bunch of surgeries, and, and I, the article I read was how the guy survived. And you look at that and you think, this is miraculous. But I know the ER doctor who helped this person on the side of the road, and this person considers himself an atheist, a, a very dear friend whom I love dearly. And he claimed to me, we were talking about it, and he claimed to me that it was all the work of man. In fact, I, I said so how did this person survive? And he just told the story as I told it. And I said, okay, well, that's on the micro level. Sure, all these people were involved, but how about on the macro level? And he wouldn't attribute any credit to God. He said, no, man deserves the best, and he survived because of man. And then you think about the spiritual realm, and you think about salvation and the soul remains as helpless to save itself as, as Adam and Eve's day one in Genesis. And still, we try to save ourselves. We, we try to work our way to God. We try to, to put God in our debt and think he owes us something because of our supposed good behavior. Tim Keller put it this way, religion makes law and moral obedience a means of salvation while irreligion makes the individual a law to self. The gospel is that Jesus pays the penalty of disobedience so that we can be saved by grace. It is awe-inspiring what God did in the gospel. I never tire of hearing it. I never tire of preaching it. God brought the gift of eternal life down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, and we don't have to travel through the universe to make it happen on our own. God put the cookies on the shelf where the kids could reach them. And God is telling us there are two ways to live. You can either try to be your own savior or you can trust in the only savior. You will foolishly live thinking that you can keep all the rules or you will wisely acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Now, even believers can fall back into works. And if you think that might be a silly thought, like how could a believer in Jesus fall back into works? Read the book of Galatians. It is all about professing believers 
living a lopsided gospel. And here in Romans, we are in the context that shows Israel's rejection of the gospel doesn't mean that God's word has failed. People would say, well, wait, they're God's chosen people. God's word must be weak. The gospel must have failed. But what we learn is that mankind is very sinful and God is sovereign in salvation, as Romans 9 tells us. And then we see at the very end of Romans 9, what we also see in other places in Romans, that everyone who rejects Christ is responsible for rejecting the gospel. They're held responsible. And chapter 10 began by showing us why Gentiles got righteousness, but Israel fell short because they tried to work for it. And now what we're seeing is that Israel's choice of the law over faith was very unwise. The passage uh, really in context is, is verse 4 to verse 13. Why God's way to righteousness wins. Why God's way to righteousness is always right. Verse 5 begins with the word for. It's because it's going to explain the truth of verse 4. That Christ is the goal or the destination to which the law always pointed. It's never been different. The law is a signpost pointing to our need for faith in Christ. And when you see the signpost, you don't pull it up and say, well, I got what I needed. No one else needs to see that. No, the signpost is always up pointing people to their need for Christ. The law is a signpost pointing to faith in Christ. Righteousness to all who believe. Saving relationship with God through yielding to Christ. And here in this passage, the idea is you don't have to chase through the universe to figure it all out. God made the way of salvation clear. And there's two points today in this passage. The first is in verse 5, that works righteousness is humanly impossible. It's humanly impossible. A lot of Christians don't grasp that. They think, no, you could be you could be perfect if you wanted to be and then in verses six and seven the second point god has made salvation readily available and the reason why he made salvation readily available is because works righteousness is humanly impossible so let's dive in in verse five first works righteousness is humanly impossible verse five for moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, the interpretation of this verse is very controversial. Uh, Some people will say, no, what this means is that those of faith will keep the commandments. They, They twist the verse. They say those with faith will keep the commandments. But nowhere does the Bible say that you can get righteousness from the law. He, Paul insists righteousness comes from God and is a gift. In Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I didn't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Moses writes of the righteousness which is of the law. Now, what's being recorded here, what's being restated is God's word to and through Moses. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament to prove to the Jewish readers they had read their Old Testament wrong. They did not understand their own law. 
The verse says, though the man who does these things shall live by them. It's quoted from Leviticus 18, verse 5, which says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. The thing people miss is the if here is an impossible if. It's not going to happen. No one can do it except God. So Paul is not changing the original meaning. He is bringing out the full meaning that was there but was not understood. There are people that took Leviticus 18.5 and misused it. They twisted it and they said, oh, you could establish your own righteousness. One Jewish interpretation of Leviticus 18.5 was that those who keep the commandments earn eternal life. They actually earn eternal life for themselves. They merit eternal life. That misinterpretation also appeared side by side with the idea in some Jewish texts which said this, God will save all the Jews whether they believe or not. Now going along with Leviticus 18.5 is Ezekiel 20 verse 11 and 13 and 21, similar where God says, I gave them my statutes and I informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them he will live. It's repeated like three times, if someone observes them. The passage of the if, the, the, the passage says if one could keep the law in its entirety. That's impossible if. The law has to be taken in whole or not at all. Uh, to hope for a righteousness based on obedience to the law requires perfect conformity in every detail, which is an utter impossibility for humans. It's foolishness. This is what Deuteronomy tells us. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. James chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. The law and the prophets said that God must have his people's undivided loyalty. He didn't mince words about that. The Bible tells us that he is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24, to protect his people and who destroys his enemies. The New Testament says it's still true. Hebrews 12 verse 25 says our God is a consuming fire. God's nature, God's nature does not change. His salvation program does not change. The Jews were wrong in thinking that this demand for loyalty was the way in which a person was made right with God. They treated the law as if it were by works, Romans 9.32. They thought righteousness by the law was the end of the story regarding what Moses was saying. And they separated the law from the promise. They, they failed to recognize the fulfillment of the promise when he came. When the Lord Jesus Christ showed up, they failed to recognize and they refused to believe. What you need to know is that Moses never taught the possibility of getting salvation through law-keeping. Not by works, but by trust in the God of the promise. Trust in the covenant God. This, this was always the response called for by the law. Justification has always been by faith. They were to believe in the God of promise. They were to believe in the coming Messiah in whom the promises are fulfilled. The idea is it's impossible to set up your own righteousness. What we know today, this side of the cross is, you must bow your knee to Christ. In obedience of faith, as Romans puts it, in the obedience of faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he died for your sins in your place, that he was buried, that he was risen on the third day, that he's coming back with blessing for those who believe. The idea is that works righteousness is impossible. 
And let's just say that you're here today and you're listening to this sermon and you say, well, I'm an atheist. What that means is that you're basically living as if you think everything depends on you. That the weight is all on your shoulders to be good enough to, to live uh, if you think there's anything past the grave. But let's just say today you say, well, I fear God, but I believe he wants us to do it on our own. That's going to show itself in your life in, in, in fear uh, in, in insecurity, in anger, when things don't work, work out the way that you want them to work out. You're gonna do math that God doesn't do. And you're gonna say, well, I did this, God's supposed to do that. God owes me because of my good behavior. You're gonna probably say things like, well, I'm doing pretty well and I hope, you know, I got like a B right now, but I'm hoping to get an A by the time of the final. It's not the way God works. But you're gonna think that your good behavior is what, is what is a trade-off for good things in your life. A lot of Christians live this way. If things go well in life, they think, wow, God is rewarding me for my good behavior. But what happens is the bottom falls out in their life, and they're like, I guess God's paying me back for all my sins. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Any attempt to obtain righteousness by law is futile. Now think about what it did for Israel. Israel under the law ended up in exile. But here is where Paul then demonstrates righteousness by faith. And he contrasts it with righteousness from the law. So works righteousness is humanly impossible, verse 5, but God has made salvation readily available, verses 6 and 7. Paul contrasts, really, Moses' statement in Leviticus 18.5 with the righteousness based on faith, and it's personified as if it can speak. But the righteousness based on faith says something. Do you notice that? The righteousness based on faith. So righteousness, being right before God, being fully justified, in accordance with what God requires, uh, you have conformity to God's standard, uh, you conformed to his perfect and holy character, it's the opposite of sin, which is falling short of the glory of God. It's his righteousness, all that he is, all that he commands, all that he demands, all that he approves, all that he gives in Christ. That righteousness, based on faith, says something to you. It says something to us. Now, a lot of people are talking to themselves all the time. They're, they're saying things about themselves. So they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I, I'm not smart, I can't draw, I can't dance, you know, I can't do anything, nobody loves me, and, and I'm rejected. And, and those, most of those are lies that, that somehow we rehearse to ourselves, but here it says the righteousness based on faith says something to you, and it says don't say in your heart, don't talk to yourself, don't, don't tell lies to yourself. And what Paul is doing when he's doing this is he's explaining Moses. He's explaining Moses. He's basically saying Moses wasn't crossing his fingers hoping that Israel was going to keep the law. He knew that they could not. That the answer always was trusting God's promise of a deliverer. That God had made promises to Abraham. God had made promises to Abraham's descendant, to his offspring. 
So what Paul is doing is explaining the full meaning of the original. And he's saying, don't say in your heart. Don't presume something that isn't true. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, here's what he said to uh, the children of Israel. Don't presume that the inheritance you get is due to your own righteousness. How many times do we want to connect those dots? Well, something good happened. It's because I was acting good. Even professing Christians will live like this. It's misunderstanding the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And so he says, do not say in your heart, don't presume a question like this. Who will ascend into heaven? Now he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. But then he puts a parenthesis, a parenthetical comment to bring Christ down. Uh, to bring down means to lead down. What he is saying is expressing a purpose here on what's going to bring on the incarnation. What's going to bring the Messiah down to us? Is it going to be our perfect obedience to the law? Is it going to be us trying to pay for our own sins? No, it's impossible. And here's why. The Messiah already appeared. God already did that. Don't ask questions like that. Oh, what's going to bring the Messiah down to earth? You don't have to do the impossible. You don't have to go to heaven and bring Christ down to where we live. God did that in the incarnation. Christ came to bear the curse of the law on our behalf. As Galatians 3.13 says. And then next in verse 7. Or, don't say this, who will descend into the abyss? Now we've got a frightening term, the abyss. A a, a deep, cavernous place, a bottomless pit. Who's going to descend into the abyss? Now he's been quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14, and here's what he says in those verses. This commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach, It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. And then verse 14, but the word is near you. We're going to see that next week in verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. You notice that Paul changes the question, the second question. In Deuteronomy says who will cross the sea, and and, in Romans 10, Paul says, who will descend into the abyss? Well, in the Old Testament, abyss and the sea were interchangeable terms. Abyss is this extremely deep and bottomless pit. It speaks of the underworld where the, the Greeks thought was the place of the dead. But what Paul is referring to when he says the abyss is referring to Christ's death. And he's saying, no way to bring Christ up from the dead. God already did it. And he picture shifts this from distance to depth and makes the contrast with heaven even sharper. Who's going to bring Christ up from the death? The the purpose of this, who's going to bring on the resurrection? It's a complete impossibility. It already happened. You can't make that happen by your works. You can't do that and make something you do bring it about. In verse 5. Justification by perfect obedience is impossible for sinful people. And verses 6 and 7 shows us what we cannot do. The two questions, by the way, from Deuteronomy 30, those became proverbial for doing the impossible. 
The gospel has no impossibilities. There are no impossibilities in the gospel. Righteousness depends on God's work alone because he's the one that sent the Messiah down to earth and he's the one that raised the Messiah from the dead. So what is impossible for humans to do, God did in the incarnation and in the resurrection. Now notice how Christ-centered Paul is in this passage with these uh, parenthetical statements about Christ. Paul read the Old Testament in light of Christ. And Paul is using Deuteronomy 30 in a way that fits the original meaning. You have to think of the context of Deuteronomy 30. This is right after Moses is prophesying that one day God is going to save his people. You look in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and 29 and you've got all these blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. You've got Israel who will return to the Lord following exile after God circumcises their hearts. So he's going to circumcise the hearts of this disobedient and stubborn people. God is going to give them a heartfelt love for himself. God is going to give them life. This is what Moses was preaching to the people. And then he was showing them obedience to the law will only happen after God takes the initiative and reconciliation. And it's fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. God's gift of reconciliation to himself through the atoning death of Jesus Christ in our place. So righteousness by faith and this is very comforting, does not necessitate superhuman powers on your part. God has done what people cannot do. So he sent Christ into the world and he raised Christ from the dead. Now the only thing we do is respond in faith to the proclaimed gospel. We don't work our way to God. Christ has come near to us. The gospel is available. The gospel is accessible. We do not need to perform feats of strength in order to be saved. We must trust Christ. So the response called for is believing. It is not doing. And the only way it's difficult, the only way it's unattainable is if you're the one out there on your own strength or on your own effort trying to earn it. Paul is pressing this truth home this is the truth that deflates our pride. That we must come like little children to receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save our souls. Paul is contrasting the works method that is impossible with the gospel method of salvation, which is now available. The Father sent the Son, it's all accomplished. It already happened. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's a glorious fact. Everyone needs to believe it. Christ was raised from the dead. It, it was already done. There's nothing else for you to do. So, so God, not man, brought about the incarnation. God, not man, brought about the resurrection. Jesus accomplishes everything necessary for salvation. He descended to earth. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. This is what we preach. This is what we believe. This is what our entire salvation is built upon and our sanctification is built upon. 
It is not what you do, it is what Christ has done. So many Christians will say, well, I'm doing all these things and I'm really feeling closer to God now. I'm doing all these things. I'm bringing Christ near. I'm bringing his kingdom in. I'm doing all these things. You don't need to climb the highest mountain. You don't need to swim across the sea. You don't need to make yourself more accepted to God by your good works. It's the huge difference between Christianity and all other religions. Christ did the work for us in our place. Every other religion, you work, 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 work. You're never done. You'll never be done with that work. And by the way, Christ's incarnation, Christ's resurrection, those were the two doctrines that the Jews couldn't handle. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't accept that. The hardest thing for them to accept, in fact, read later in Acts 17 what the intellectual reaction was to those truths. You have to believe and accept the incarnation and the resurrection if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be saved. And we're going to see those two doctrines again next week as we look in verses 8 through 10. But what we see in this passage is that works righteousness is humanly impossible and God has made salvation readily available. You look at these three verses and you're like, wow, they seem puzzling. But they're actually clear. God has made the impossible available. He did what we could not do. We can't bring Christ down to save us. He did in the incarnation. We can't raise Christ from the dead. He did in the resurrection. God has provided it all. You don't need to go find it. God made the impossible available. He has brought salvation near. Righteousness based on law is impossible. Righteousness based on faith is available. It is not a puzzle. God has put it right in front of you. You've got to understand the non-works character of saving faith so that you can actually understand sanctification as well. Where God does the work, but you are making choices every day to want to follow and to open up your Bible and to pray and to, and to share the gospel and to treat brothers and sisters in Christ with love. But here's the thing, you, you misunderstand the non-works character of saving faith in the gospel, you will misunderstand your life in Christ. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not, hey, Jesus saved me, hey, Jesus, I got it from here, I'll see you in heaven. No, he has made the way and he is always the way. He, he has prepared Good works for us to walk in, to live in. He did that beforehand. If you understand Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you're not saved by your works, then you will understand Ephesians 2, 10, that God has prepared good works for you to walk in. We have to stay in our lane. God has made the way. This should affect our faith, our fellowship, our families, our friendships. This should affect our hearts, should affect our homes, should affect the household of God as we strive together for the truth of the gospel, as we are united in Christ, as we are answering the call to encourage one another day by day as we see the day of the Lord drawing near, as we are encouraging one another to press on to know the Lord, as we are showing Christ to a needy world. 
And I want to give you some personal application of this in, in the form of questions. I want to give you four questions. If you want to live this out, if you're a believer and you want to live this out, first question Why would we ever think that we could add to the gospel by trying to earn our way to God after we've already been accepted by God? And if you think that is a silly question, you need to read the book of Galatians. Paul was very puzzled over a group of Christians in churches in a certain region that were falling back into works righteousness. He says, I'm I'm, I'm confused about you. I'm puzzled about you. Who has cast a spell on you? Who has bewitched you? He is telling Christians about the glory of the gospel. And he's saying, stop trading it in for legalistic works. He's telling Christians this because we have this tendency to fall back into thinking that what we do makes God love us more. What we do makes God like us more. What we do makes God bring blessing into our life more. But then what happens when the bottom falls out in your life, you start thinking God is paying you back for all your sins. To the Galatians, Paul was like, if you're going to preach the gospel to reach the world with the gospel, you need to be straight about the gospel yourselves. Because if you have a crooked gospel, if you have a, a wobbly gospel, if you have a lopsided gospel, those are the kind of disciples you're going to make. In Galatians chapter 3, he says this, Now is it evident that no one is justified before God by the law, For the righteous shall live by faith. He's reminding them what Habakkuk said. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was hung on the cross for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul was very concerned for the Galatian Christians. In fact, he said to them in Galatians 5.4, if you're working for your acceptance with God, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That is frightening. The Galatians were being corrected for falling prey to legalism. Let's just say that, that that's you today and you're like, you know, I think I'm working for my salvation. And and I'm a legalist about it. You know what kind of person you're going to be? You're going to be controlling with other people. You're going to hold people to a higher standard than you want to be held to. Relationship with you will be like blunt force trauma again and again and again. People will not know what hit them again and again and again. If you think you're on some sort of frantic search or even a very time-consuming one to be right with God, you're going to get frustrated You're going to be tired. You're going to be confused. Your strength will be gone. You've got to understand the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Christ did what we could not do. That way, you can use your strength in God's service following Christ. You you stay in your lane. You, you You would most significantly avoid the danger of making Crooked disciples because you believe a lopsided gospel. Second question. 
why would we ever downplay the gospel and think that it wasn't that important and live in ways that displease God and not care about it? Now, if you think that's a silly question, you need to read 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is all about people like that, people who are licentious. If, if, you're, if you're a follower of Christ and you're like, it doesn't really matter what I do, then you're going to have no conscience about lying or cheating or gossiping. You're going to be passive aggressive with people. Relationship with you will be like being infected by a virus, but people won't know what hit them until a couple days later. But it's amazing when you understand the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and you realize you didn't earn it and you can never be good enough and that God isn't judging you by your good or bad behavior. Something amazing happens when when your bedrock is the grace of God in Christ. You start saying things like, I'm gonna pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what they look like, no matter whether I like them or not, I'm gonna trust God that he would cause me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ and that I'm gonna bear their burdens, bear one another's burdens, just fulfill the law of Christ. I'm gonna help others grow in Christ. This is one of the reasons why our unity and our mission is so important. And I know I keep bringing it up over and over again, I'm gonna tell you why. It's really easy when you go through Romans to go, it's about the gospel, yes. It's about the righteousness of God Revealed in the gospel, yes. But why I've been emphasizing unity and our mission so often is because as we've been going verse by verse through the gospel and I've been just drenched in Romans and I've been just immersed in it, what I've discovered is our unity in Christ and our mission with the gospel are the two big sub-themes under the gospel in the book of Romans. Why Paul was writing to the Romans. He wanted them to be unified in the gospel and he wanted them to, to reach others with the gospel. And it is one thing for us to say, well, I know the gospel or I believe the gospel. It's quite another thing to live it in such a way that you could actually pinpoint that has an effect upon your relationships with other fellow believers and in your efforts to reach others who don't know Christ. It's not enough to say, I know the gospel. It's not enough to say, well, I live the gospel. If you can't connect your relationship with other Christians and your mission to you saying you know and live the gospel, you're, you're, you're off base. Here's Paul, as a believer, being sanctified. You know what he said about himself? He said, I worked harder than all of them. And you're like, wait a minute, is Paul running into the same problem the Galatians had? No, because here's what he said. I worked harder than all of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God with me. See, you, when you understand the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, you take no credit. You take zero credit because God prepared beforehand your good works that you walk in, that you live in. You know, I, I can't wait. In some sense, I can't wait till we get to chapters 12 through 16 because it is just chock full of exhortations to unity and to witness. But what we have here are implications about unity and witness. And this is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. This is how we interact and engage with and treat fellow Christians. Our attitude towards fellow Christians. Our actions towards fellow Christians. And what we tell people of Christ. What gospel version do we give them? Because twisted disciples make twisted disciples. Humble disciples make humble disciples. Unified disciples make unified disciples. It is of utmost importance 
where our hearts are at. God knows. God knows. And then where our lives are at with other believers. This drives how healthy or unhealthy our evangelism and discipleship will be. And we are bound to go to two, one of two extremes. We either act like Corinthians, licentious, thinking we could do whatever we want, not caring about other people, or we act like Galatians, legalistic, making sure that we and everybody else follows the rules. Two more questions to keep in mind as professing believers who evangelize and disciple people. Question three, why would we ever add things to the gospel? And I especially think of this, why would we ever expect unbelievers to clean up their act before they come to Christ? No, you share the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and you let them know that if they believe this gospel, their sins are forgiven. They are accepted in the beloved in Christ. They have a new life. Let God clean up their life. If there is someone who doesn't know Christ but they're downplaying their need of him but they're a legalist, they're gonna think they deserve good because they've been so good in their minds. If there's someone who is downplaying their need for Christ and they're licentious, they're not going to take any responsibility for their life. We know clearly that God has made salvation available, but he doesn't give it to everyone. Romans 9, we we learned in the macro big picture that God chooses who will be saved. But in Romans 10, we learn on the micro small level that every person has to make a decision whether they're going to believe in Christ or not. You need to want to worship Christ. You need to want Christ to save you. And one more question. Why would we twist or leave parts of the gospel out? Like not mentioning sin or not mentioning God's judgment. There are people professing to be believers who say, the God I believe in is only a loving God. So if they hear about sin or they hear about God's judgment, they don't want to hear that. They just want to hear about God's love all day long. Well, guess what? The God of the Bible is always loving. He's never unloving. And the God of the Bible is always wrathful. He's never unwrathful. It's not like God's wrathful on Thursdays and loving on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You know, I want to see God on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I really don't want to see the wrathful God. No, God is always loving. He is always wrathful. He is always just. He is always fair. He is always kind. He is always merciful. He is always gracious. And all his attributes fit perfectly together and exist at the same time in perfect harmony. In Acts chapter 16, I love this. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. It tells us of Lydia, Lydia who was listening to the gospel being preached, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to believe the things spoken by Paul. I love it. God opened her heart to the gospel, and here's what happens with those whose hearts God opens to the gospel. When when you recognize your sinfulness and you you realize what Jesus did, you run to, to Jesus. You run to Christ. And, and this is great, because God doesn't give you a new recipe every day as a believer. Here's what you do the rest of your life. You keep running to Christ. God in his kindness leads you to repentance. God in his kindness uh, gives you love for him and for other believers. You just keep running to Christ and his grace and his mercy. 
And what happens is, you know, we have all the super blooms right now and all these flowers in abundance. Well, instead of a super bloom of sin that is putrid, what you get in your life in Christ is a super bloom of the glory of God in the gospel. And it, it spreads. It, it, you're relying upon God's grace and mercy. And, and, and you're a super bloom of grace and mercy to those who, who see you. And it doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every moment. It's probably seasonal. It's probably situational. It's probably momentary. It ebbs and flows in our lives. We don't perfectly display the glory of God every moment. But other people see glimpses of the glory of God in and through our lives. As we close, I just want to very briefly uh, give you today's sermon in a nutshell. With, with, with few words. Here it is. Ready? Of the impossible made available. Works righteousness is humanly impossible. God made salvation readily available. You don't have to chase through the universe to find it. God made it clear. And so why would we ever think that we could add to this by trying to earn our way to God after we've already been accepted by God? Why would we downplay it and think it's not that important and live in ways that displease God? Why would we add things to the gospel as we're sharing the gospel? Or why would we twist or leave things out as we're sharing the gospel? God has made the impossible available and he has brought salvation near in Christ. How marvelous. How wonderful. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for you doing what we could never do. Lord, you are a loving, heavenly Father, and we love you because you first loved us. We, we know, Lord, you are so good. You're not playing games with us. You're not a mean ogre who's trying to get us. Uh, you're not a nefarious huckster trying to trick us. You, Lord, are, are not a vindictive uh, enemy, spiteful, trying to pay us back. Lord, you are good. You are are loving, you are kind, you are merciful, and you work for your glory and the good of all who yield to your rule. And we thank you, Lord, that you enable our glad surrender to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and join us in our closing song? This song is all about uh, everything about Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org. 